please give me a thumbs up if you can all hear me. But keep your thumb up a second. I want to get on. Yeah. Okay. Anybody give me a th thumbs down if you can't hear me. Okay. We're good. Good enough. Great. Thank you. Okay. We'll again be working with the same form we've been working with. We'll sit for a half an hour and there'll be a talk for about a half an hour. And then we'll have a discussion about the topic. Um, and I'll be doing a guided meditation for the most part um, until we get to a more open awareness. Um, so please make yourself upright and comfortable, awake and alert. You know, put, please put your body in a posture that's as uh, comfortable and uh, awake as possible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the same. I'll sit down for this. You can let your eyes close and let the tension be, begin to come inside. And we'll begin with the parts of the body. And so beginning from the head, being aware, feeling, sensing, simply knowing that there is skin from the head, around the head, neck, shoulders, arms, hands, top of the torso, bottom of the torso, hips, upper legs, lower legs, feet, aware that this body is, has skin here as we sit here. Being aware, feeling, sensing, or simply knowing there is skin. Then beginning with the feet, sensing, knowing, being aware of the flesh, toes, feet, lower legs, upper legs, hips and buttocks, and the lower part of the torso, 
and the upper half of the torso. Shifting to the hands, flesh, forearms, upper arms, flesh. Then the top of the torso and shoulders, flesh. The neck, flesh. And of course, the head, the cheeks, tongue, brain, flesh. Taking a moment to sense the flesh of the whole body. And then from the head downward, the bone, the skull, jawbone, teeth, bone. The top of the spine, where of the bone here. That goes down to the shoulder bones. And then the bones of the upper arm and lower arm. Hands and fingers, bone. in a very relaxed way, simply beginning to be aware of the skeleton that's here, made up of bone. And shifting your attention to the bones of the top of the torso, chest bones, breastbone, the spine, which goes down from the neck to the middle and lower part of the torso, all the way to the hip bones, and from the hips, the bones of the upper legs, and the lower legs. Ankles and feet, many bones of the feet.
and taking a moment to feel, sense, be aware of, in contact with the skeleton that is sitting here, made up of bone. So we're aware of the skeleton, the bone of the body, and then including now the flesh, from feet to head, and including with the bone and the flesh, the skin that covers it all. And again, scanning from the top of the head, we'll move to the elements, sensing the earth element from the head all the way to the feet, earth element, characterized by hardness, solidity, solidness, ground. And then from the feet up to the head, the water element, the liquidity of the body. characterized by the different liquids, fluids that are part of us, part of our body, and have a cohesive element to them, part of the cohesion of the body. And then being mindful, aware, feeling, sensing the fire element from the head to the feet, the warmth or coolness, sometimes characterized by softness, like when something gets cooked, it softens. feeling, sensing, being aware of, simply knowing the fire element here in the body. And then from the feet to the head, sensing, being aware of the wind element, the expansion and contraction of the movement of the wind element most clearly characterized by our breath. And 
and then in a very relaxed way, becoming aware specifically of our life's breath. A breath that connects us with life. The wind element that we need to survive. And with each in-breath reflecting on the fact that this could be our last breath. And letting go with the out-breath. With each in-breath including very quietly, subtly, the reflection that this could be our last breath. Or even if it isn't, that it's certainly one breath closer to death. And then relaxing on the out-breath, letting go. Bringing in the teaching of the temporality of the life of this body and all living bodies for all sentient beings. And then continuing to include more of the Satipatthana Sutta teachings implicitly, including feelings, as we sense the parts of the body, noticing if there's any pleasant feeling in the head or neck or shoulders or arms or hands the torso or hips, legs, feet, any, any pleasant feeling in or on the body. As we become aware of the Vedna of experience, and so there may be a pleasant feeling somewhere in or on the body. And then moving from the feet and opening to the fact there may be an unpleasant feeling, sensation, experience in the feet or legs, hips, torso, hands, arms shoulders, neck, head, opening to not only pleasant feeling, but unpleasant experience that may be here in or around the body. And then including the full breadth of Vedna 
and being aware if there's any neutral feeling as we move from the head, neck, shoulders, arms, hands, torso, hips, legs, feet, being aware of any neutral feeling. And including in the field of Vedna, any other type of feeling, often on the mental or emotional level, which could be pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral. Resting in the awareness that's knowing pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral in body, heart, or mind. And then including the mind, the third foundation of mindfulness, the mind being that which knows the feeling or is mindful of the present moment experience. And letting this awareness that is here, present, aware of the body, the breath, the feelings, the mind. Letting that be very open to simply an open awareness, an open embodied awareness so that we stay very present here, very current, meaning with the present moment's experience, whether it's physical or mental or emotional, or whether it's worldly or unworldly.
Um, so uh, this is the ninth talk of this series, uh, and we've had a we've we've looked at a number of parts of the Satipatthana Sutta. You know, I talked about the definition of what that means to be uh, ardent, uh, fully aware and mindful. We talked about the refrain of not clinging to anything in the world. Uh, we went through different uh, practices, the breath. We talked about uh, activities, practicing imposture in all activities. We talked about what it means to have an embodied awareness that includes this the scanning that we do in terms of flesh skin flesh uh, skin flesh bones uh, we looked at the uh, at marana sati which is in the satipatthana sutta as the charnel ground contemplations we looked at vedna feeling and then also mind uh, last week and today we're going to continue um, moving to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the fourth foundation, which is mindfulness of dhammas, dharmas or dhammas. And um, it's an interesting component. Most people are more familiar actually with the first three, you know, parts, mindful of the body, mindful of feelings, and then mindful of, of mind or heart mind. Um, and the, the fourth foundation is uh, uh, actually a bunch of lists, right? If you read the teaching, it's a different list. And there are different Buddhist teachings of the five hindrances and the five aggregates and the six sense doors and the seven factors of awakening and the four noble truths, which of course includes the list of the eightfold noble path. And so you get a lot of content that we're asked to be mindful of in the fourth foundation. And so I always think it's really an interesting component of the teaching of Satipatthana, of what does it mean to really practice with the fourth foundation of Dhammas. And uh, it's, been translated different ways. When I was young, it was often translated as mental objects, which the, the fourth foundation was mindfulness of mental objects, which made no sense to me at all. I mean, I kind of understood what they were saying, but it didn't make any sense experientially to me about what I was doing. Was I just looking at how the mind thinks about these things? That may be part of it, but but I think, and then other people said, oh, it's about the teachings of the Buddha, which is accurate. That's what the mindfulness of Dhammas is. But a better, uh, or, or another way to talk about it is that it's about all phenomena because they, there's a small d dhamma, which means everything is a dhamma, everything. Every thought, feeling, sight, sound, taste, touch, it's all a dhamma. And so it's, it's part of the fourth foundation. 
And I like that better because it moves to my favorite understanding, which came much later for me of what the fourth foundation is about. It's really about categories of phenomena and basically uh, how the principles of the Dhamma are organized to begin to wake up and support our waking up when we practice using these different categories of phenomena, right? And so what happens is it's a place where the conceptual doctrine or teachings starts to get transmuted into a direct perception or a clear understanding or a living knowing so that we understand what the Buddha said was not just uh, abstract, was not just conceptual, he used concepts, but he was pointing at a way to see reality and then to see what happens as we see through that door, right? And so the, the intention, I believe, of the fourth foundation is to have a more direct perception of the Buddhist teachings and investigate the categories of phenomena in order to see what's true and what's not true. What do we understand? What don't we understand? And um, let's see. Um, Analyo, um, who quotes a few different people about this, who I don't know who he's quoting, but I wrote their names down just to be respectful, um, quoting of somebody named Giori. Uh, who states that the contemplation of the Dhamma is specifically intended to invest the mind with a soteriological orientation. Okay, I'm going to say that again, right? So that the contemplation of, the, of these Dhamma are specifically intended to invest the heart and mind with a soteriological orientation, soteriological orientation, right? And he also quotes somebody else, Gombrek, writing that these contemplating these Dharma teachings, one begins to see the world through Buddhist spectacles. And I think that's a good understanding. It's like, oh, we're putting on a different pair of glasses. That's called the Dharma understanding. And now we're looking at the same phenomena from that and see what happens as we look through those eyes. But I'm gonna back up to the first part about that, uh, that contemplating the dharmas are specifically intended to invest the heart and mind with a soteriological orientation. And of course, I didn't actually really know what soteriological was, so I looked it up. And here's what it says, soteriology is understood by academics in religious studies that it's a key th it's pointing at what's the key theme in each religion what's the key of each religion what's really important what is each religion offering as the key of what it is to you know in in buddhist terms wake up but also in in you know christian terms to see god or be or be um, or go to heaven or whatever the, the key is that is in the different religions. And so 
so soteriological is something about what salvation is and how it is obtained right in the different religion whether it's buddhism or islam or christianity or judaism or or what, whatever other religion it might be and um and i think that's a really important piece because personally and i think for you all you wouldn't be here if your heart wasn't touched by something or there wasn't something you knew was possible that is a heartfelt care or love or or gets you devotes you to waking up to seeing what's the truth right and so in buddhism um, the fundamental reason the precise um, key that is that's in all of um, the Satipatthana Sutta that's being pointed at that we're studying is what is it to identify with reality, body, heart, mind, right? What is it to identify internally, externally? What happens if we identify and who's identifying and what happens if we don't cling to anything in the world? right which is the refrain that's part of satipatthana from from the beginning to the end right do not cling not clinging to anything in this world right including our identity and so and so buddhism part of the soteriological key to buddhism is about not clinging and not clinging to an identity right personal and phenomenal right and and so both any kind of clinging whether it's to myself or someone else or even the buddha right is soteriologically undercutting what buddha's teaching is aiming at right and so part of what we're trying to do is first uncover our clinging by seeing what's here and what's what's alive here what is this you know which is of course the great zen phrase that's used over and over again what is this it's great i've had zen teachers say yell at you what is this you know because who knows what it is really except we think we know we're attached to our concepts our ideas our beliefs instead of see that seeing them as lenses we're seeing things through and now in the satipatthana we're starting to look at the lens especially in the fourth foundation but really in, in all of the foundations even what's a body you know we always think oh this is me right and of course, the, the hands here that are pointing at Eugene, if they were your hands, they'd be pointing at you. This is me, I'm the body, right? But in fact, what's a body, right? Skin, flesh, and bones. Is that who and what you are? Are you the skin or are you the flesh or are you the bones, right? Or is it, uh, is it a component of conditioned reality that's come together for a while and will be young together at some point will come apart at some point which is why that the marana sati contemplation is right in the first foundation because the body is just a conglomerate 
think that's the right word, of different components. And then it comes apart, right? Meaning it dies at some point. And so here we're looking at uncovering our clinging and working on it so we, became, we become able to let go or let things be because this is the key soteriologically to what the Buddha was teaching about what Buddha had to offer to people, which is our dukkha was based on clinging. And, when, whether it's, and we'll go through more of this a little more. And of course, you can think of for yourself, what do you think the Buddha wanted us to get? I mean, did he just want us to be nice people? Was that what he was doing? Or did he want to make sure you could be mindful at work? Was that what he was trying to teach, right? Because um, uh, uh, cultural Buddhism, cultural mindfulness, which is really good, you know, everybody gets to be mindful now. But what's the goal, right? In addition to being present, or, or being, you know, a good person. What is the goal for each of us? And what, what was the goal that the Buddha had? What was his intention for teaching? And in my understanding, it was for us to wake up. It was to really wake up to the potential of what's sitting in your seat, of what's sitting in each seat here, to wake up to the what I like to think of, I don't often, I don't like to say, oh, the Buddha was enlightened. I mean, we can use that language. But I like to think, and, and how I understand it is, oh, he became a mature human being. And he reached a level of maturity we're not so familiar with. That very rarely happens, that level, but is possible for all of us as human beings. And it's not just the maturity, because you all are mature human beings, right? I'm not saying you're not, or that I'm not. You know, you know how to, you know, pay your bills and make your food and, and stay six feet apart now because we're in Corona. That's a mature thing to do, right? Is to really respect what's appropriate at different times, right? Um, and keep washing your hands. I just want to put that in the room so we don't forget. Uh, but the Buddha talked about another level of maturity that sees the big picture and understands one is part of something greater or more, or more, uh, or, or is not just based on our individual identity. And so he wanted us to wake up or to. He was trying to teach us a way to see or understand reality, right? The truth of the way things are. And I always say this, but I'm going to say it again about this understanding. This is from the Buddha. He said, this committed life, the committed life is lived for the sake of seeing into things and understanding them. And so under, and this is from the, uh, Itivutaka Sutta, Itivutaka Sutta. This is what we're doing is try to wake up and understand reality. And reality is bigger than us, right? Even though we also are reality. We're, in, we're a manifestation of reality that is everywhere and nowhere at the same time, 
I shouldn't throw in the nowhere, that's for another talk, but the everywhere. And, um, and so the dharmas give us a roadmap to begin to see and identify what do we cling to, right? What's the basis of identification and what do we identify with become part of the underlying questions here. And of course, the different uh, phenomena. Oh, I don't think I said the phenomena. Yeah, I wanted to say it. The different phenomena of the uh, in the fourth foundation is there's the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense spheres, and the seven factors of an awakening, and the uh, four noble truths. So those are the lists, right? Five hindrances, five aggregates, six sense fears, seven factors of awakening, four noble truths. Okay, so those are the lists. And the Buddha is saying, oh, look at this. See what you see if you see it through these eyes, through the eyes of Satipatthana, through the eyes of being here, present, with an embodied awareness, what do you understand then about the, the hindrances, which I'll talk about a little more in a minute, or, or the five aggregates, uh, which some of you may know or not know, uh, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. These are five conditioned uh, components that he said make up the human experience that often we're not aware of because we're identified with form, which is body, or feelings, which is vedana, or um, uh, form, feeling, um, um, cognitions, for me, uh, cognitions, which is uh, per, or also sometimes called perception, right? And then, um, and then formation, sometimes called volition, and then consciousness itself, which in Buddhism is understood to all be arising and passing. It's all here in a moment, but then it's gone in a moment, then it's here in a moment, then it's gone in a moment. That the moments aren't concrete. They aren't concrete. They aren't a thing there. It's, it's all conditioned and arising, right? And so they're the aggregates or the sense fears like eye, ear, uh, nose, tongue, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, heart, mind, right? And those sense fears are how we per get information about reality right, is through these things and through these different sense spheres and that they're also arising and passing, right? Everything is here for a moment and then not here. Like a sight is here for a moment and then not here. And, then, but, and that not here is instantaneous. So often it looks like it's here forever, but it's... And this is mostly known more directly when we're on a long retreat and you can actually see the moment appearing and disappearing, arising and passing. 
the impermanence of it. And then the factors of awakening, I'm going to talk about on Tuesday, so I'm not going to go into that, but the different factors of awakening, just to say, are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, uh, tranquility, concentration, and uh, equanimity, which uh, Analia likes to call equipoise. I'm okay with equanimity, but he likes equipoise, so I like to throw it in there. Um, and then, of course, the Four Noble Truths, which are, right, the heart of Buddhist teaching, really, which is about suffering and the cause of suffering and the end of suffering and the path that leads to freedom, the end of suffering. And so these are all different lenses that we can perceive with and through, right? It's like being a participant observer. We see with the lens and we see through the lens. We start to get a we start to become the lens itself is one potential. And seeing through the lens of, of these different understandings that the Buddha had um, give us a great opportunity to perceive the way things are or to perceive in a new way. And one of my favorite understandings of, uh, of awakening is a shift in perception. It's a shift in perception. It's not just magic bills and lights and, you know, Disney cartoon kind of stuff. It's a shift in our understanding and our perception of who and what we are and what everything is. There's a shift. And it's not, and it may be dramatic in the moment, but then it's not even so dramatic. It's just a shift and you see reality different. And it's, there is part of it, you do get to see the magic or the beauty or the mystery or the wonder of reality, that it's all just happening on its own, including us. It's all just happening on its own. And we see that the me, I, mine, is a little bit of an add-on. It's not a bad add-on. You don't have to get rid of me, I, mine, but it's only one way to perceive reality. You can also perceive from not me, not I, not mine, and then see what happens when that, that shift in perspective happens. One of the great phrases that many people use when they have a taste of awakening is, oh, it's not like I thought it would be, right? And, you know, that's, I've heard this so many times from people who've had even the first taste of realization that, it, you know, that they thought it was going to be so much more or so much less or so much something because they thought it would be what they thought. And it's not what we think. <laughs> That's the beautiful part. It's more real than that. It's not just a thought. So I want to say a little bit about the five hindrances. What do I want to say? That's a good question. Um, 
Yeah, I'll say something about the five hindrances. Uh, the hindrances are really, 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 really important. And I say it that way because I've often underestimated how important they are. Because I practiced a long time and I started to think, oh yeah, hindrances, it's no, I don't, you know, I can deal with the hindrances. I don't have hindrances, you know, and stuff. And that was not wise. I mean, I really learned something. I remember this one retreat I had not that long ago where I sat down and all of a sudden I really got the hindrances and it was so freeing because I saw how gross they are, but I also saw how subtle they are. And of course the hindrances are, are simply put as desire, aversion, sloth, the, each one, desire, aversion, Sloth and torpor is three. Restlessness and worries, four. Doubt is five. Those are the five hindrances, right? And, you know, and, and um, they're not bad things. They're not a mistake. They happen on their own. They're, they're part of how reality manifests as hindrances, right? They're... Technically, they're called mental factors in Buddhism. Mental factors, I would say heart-mind factors. And they arise, and they arise if you're human. I mean, anybody not have any desire for anything? Anybody not have any aversion to anything? Anybody not get tired, right? Sloth and torpor, or dull, or kind of, you know, kind of, you know, uh, not no clarity, right? Or anybody not get restless or worry, right? Please raise your hand if you don't worry. I always want to meet that person who never worries, right? Restlessness, worry, and then doubt, which is, of course, I always think is the real killer of the of the hindrances person. I'll say more in a second. But um, meaning killer because we believe it so much we believe our doubt and uh and so there are five hindrances and they arise in the meditation practice and of course they arise in life and they're not bad things but can we be aware of them rather than just be leave them or be identified with what i want or what i don't want or identified even with my sloth and torpor my my tiredness or my dullness or my lack of clarity, or being identified with my restlessness or worry, and believing that it's true, especially the worry. Because there may be a problem, but discernment is different than worry. Worry's an add-on, right? Concern can happen, but you don't have to worry about anything. It's all just going to happen one way or the other, good or bad. And, and we want to do the best we can to make the a really, you know, things happen well, and we're not in control, right? Which, of course, you all know. And, and then um, doubt, which I always found the hardest one for myself, which is doubting anything or everything. And then I learned something, and because in Zen they talk about great doubt and small doubt. And, and so mostly the hindrances, especially in meditation practice, are concerned with small doubt. 
you're doubting if you can do it, you're doubting if it's doable, you're doubting that uh, what the Buddha said, you're doubting the teachers, you're doubting, 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 right? And so the doubting doesn't let you give yourself fully to the moment. It obscures your presence of being with your body, heart, and mind, and whatever's happening, whether you like it or not. And so, and of course, great doubt really means, oh, you're really pondering um, the question of what is reality? I don't know. And, and that's true. Or, or that's a great doubt of how, do, how can I get my heart to open fully? Or how do, how do I get my heart and mind to open so I see clearly and can respond skillfully? These are great doubts, but they're not the little doubts that say, I can't do this, or there's something wrong with me. Often the doubt has a, self, um, a self-denigrating a self component to it for many of us. And if you're interested, I'm going to talk about this self-denigration Sunday night at SFI. Somebody asked me to talk about it, so I am going to talk about that. And um, so when the Buddha talked about the hindrances, he used the simile that I'll tell you. It's kind of a beautiful simile, and it, it clarifies. The simile is, um, illustrates the effect of the different obstructions of the hindrances on the heart and mind. And what, what the Buddha said is, imagine a pond of water, right? And in the water, sense desire is like the water being colored with pretty dyes. Like somebody throws some blue dye or red dye in this clear, beautiful little pool of water. And we become entranced or enchanted with the beauty of the color so that we cannot see to the depth of the, of the pond right? <clears throat> and then anger, ill will, or aversion is like boiling water, right? It's very turbulent. You can't see to the bottom because of the turbulence in heart and mind. Can't see the, to the bottom of what's here because we're reacting. We're in the reaction of aversion or hatred, and it's an obstacle to understanding because we can't see clearly. And then sloth and tor torpor is equated with the pond being covered with uh, algae or algae. How do you say it? Does anybody know how to say it? If you know, write it to me as a little private chat. Algae or algae or both. I don't know. Anyhow. Um, and so when there's that kind of uh, growth on the, on the surface of the pond and it's dense, you cannot see to the bottom. You can't see through it, right? And it, it's equated with a very heavy mind, right? And then the restlessness and worry is when the pond is windswept and there's a lot of, you know, strong winds, the water's agitated by the strong winds. And so uh, insight becomes impossible because our hearts and minds are not clear, not centered. And of course, doubt is like when the, if the water becomes muddied was the analogy. The water becomes muddied and you can't see anything and wisdom is obscured by murkiness and cloudiness. All right. 
And then this is from my friend, colleague, Joseph Goldstein. Joseph said, he said, all the hindrances, desire, anger, sloth and torpor, restlessness, doubt, are mental factors. He said, they are not self, just impersonal factors functioning in their own way. So that's important to see because we don't have to take it on that it's our fault when the hindrances are here. That's what happens. It's part of the deal. It's not who and what we are. And especially in our life, there's another way to consider it. Uh, Chogyam Chungpa Rinpoche, who actually started Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salz, no, he started Jack and Joseph teaching together many years ago in the 1970s, Chungpa Rinpoche, he said these difficulties, talking about the hindrances, are manure for Bodhi. The difficulties are manure for Bodhi, manure for awakening, right? They're, they're, the, they're what feeds the soil so that we wake up, right? And then a woman, uh, Bernice Johnson Regan, who's a historian and musician, she put it really lovely. I don't know if she's a Buddhist or not. She said, life's challenges are not supposed to paralyze you. They're supposed to help you discover who you are. And that's part of what happens with the hindrances is they can really help us wake up to the truth of what's here. And then I'll end this talk with a poem from my teacher, Rio Khan who said, and he was, yeah, you'll hear how the, the first hindrance is there. He says, without desire, everything is sufficient. Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone I hike with a deer. Cheerfully I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fills my heart. Beautiful understanding from Rio Khan how this is it. And even especially given the, the difficulty of coronavirus and our... Um, you know, our stay-at-home practice now, it's so good to see, oh yeah, we're seeking myriad things are impoverished when actually all we need to do is have shelter, be warm, have food, and some contact, and we're okay. We may not be great, it may not be what we want or what we like or what we hope for, but actually that's all we need to be okay is just to be alive and be alive and not be threatened in the moment, even though we're all threatened existentially right now by COVID-19. But we're living a very simple life that I'm pointing at, which he's talking about when he says, without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. And I love the last line. He says, the pine on the mountaintop fills my heart. The tree, just the tree. So those are a few thoughts about the fourth foundation and, uh, and hindrances.
So I uh, open it to your questions, comments, reactions, what you like. LG, LG from Karen, thank you. LG, good, from Denise, good. Thank you, LG. Okay. Uh, Phil, I'm gonna unmute you. Okay, you you speaking, Phil? Thank you very much, Eugene. Welcome. You know, you, you, you've alluded to this on, on many levels, but you've never used the term emptiness once in our whole teaching here. And I think that emptiness is, is probably the sociological direction of Buddhism. Could you comment on that? Uh, I don't know if it's the seriological direction of Buddhism, but I think it's a really good thing, an important thing, and it's part of reality is on some level, everything is empty. The question for you that I have for you is, what is it empty of? It's empty of any inherent solidity or meaning independent of what we give it. Uh -huh. Okay. And I, and I think that... And you know, wh why is it important? Because that's the basis of our self-identification, and identification with everything else. We identify with what we believe is real. And uh -huh. I think that understanding why and how we create our reality mm -hmm. is the key to giving up the attachment. And I think that emptiness is, is, the, is the beauty of Buddhism. Uh -huh. Okay. That, that was the real message. So I'm just surprised. Okay, but wait, 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 wait. Let me say one more thing before sure. you. Because... Um, you're saying something really good and really important that's different for different people. And this is what I like about the fourth, Four Noble Truths. Some people light up with the five aggregates. I mean, that lights them up. That wakes them up. For some people, they wake up through the six sense doors. Like they just start seeing everything's just at a different sense door, rising and passing, rising and passing. Because some of us might think that impermanence is the soteriological key, where some of us may think emptiness is because that's what lights us up. Mm. And so I just want to put that in the room because I don't think there's one way, actually. I think different components, and this is something that I was taught early on and I didn't, quite get early on, but I love now, which is any door of the Dharma can lead to awakening. And emptiness is a beautiful door. And, and it's one that definitely touches you. I, I hear what you're saying. The, the comment I'm making is that everything that you've been talking about, mm -hmm. the nature of reality, mm -hmm. the nature of reality, mm -hmm. And we see things arising and falling away. Mm -hmm. We construct our reality, emptiness. I, I think my own way of seeing everything 
is the fact that how we understand, how we construct our reality is the basis for everything else. Uh-huh. And I think that... So, so okay, so again, the, four, the fourth truth is very... Or the Satipatthana is, then answers all your questions. Because it's all pointing at how we construct reality. Mm-hmm. Right? Body, heart, mind. And that you're saying, and I, of course, is true, is totally empty. And it's also beautiful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> good. I got a good head shake on that one. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Katrina. Thank you. Um, hi. Hi. I'm not sure if I have a question, maybe a reflection on uh, Please. on uh, what I've been experiencing during this talk and also during the silent retreat at Spirit Rock a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much for bringing up the question of what are we clinging to? so often and the clinging to identity was a strong one which came up for me actually sure and uh, my well, well, welcome to the human club <laughs> yeah and I, I i just realized or i realized those few weeks ago and keep you know exploring that that um really how much dukkha is in there to be more specific, not just talk about these general terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I experienced that I've been, I'm really clinging to the identity of, a, of being a good researcher uh-huh. and the identity of doing good work uh-huh. in, in general in my life to uh-huh. do a good job or just to be good. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and yeah, just realizing like, this is who I am, or, like, this is really the, this is that identity. Uh-huh. And um, like how liberating is just to let go of it for a moment. <laughs> uh-huh. what, what happens if you let go of it for a moment? What happens is that I don't need to to strive for uh, right. for all all the things, all what I have to do, uh, all it, it's it's a lot. <laughs> but almost like an emptiness comes for a moment. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't. Go, yeah. go, go ahead. Keep going. Anything else? Sorry. Um, it's, it just feels so light and (laughs) (laughs) I like light. Um, well, here, here's, I hear what you're saying. I want to point to something that you may, you don't want to seeing the identification. You want to see, it's helpful to see the causes and conditions of the identification, right? Which may be uh, 
numerous causes and conditions, but also see what is what in what's there that's not just identification with the role and the doing of it, but I imagine, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, that there's a heartfelt love of discovery and doing what you do well. And that's, and so you want to be able to discern and differentiate between the attachment to the goal and also the love or heartfulness that motivated you in the beginning to even pursue your career. Does that make sense? Totally. And uh, I completely agree with what you said because you, I, you what? Say that I, again? I completely agree okay. with what yeah. you just said. Yeah. Because yeah. what brought me and what I am still in love with is the curiosity and what I find the commonality between Buddhism and uh, and science is just uh, constantly searching for the truth. Totally, you know? yeah. And, and being just curious and open-minded to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just love all those pieces. So it's not like I wouldn't enjoy being the researcher. I just, I just realized there is suffering when I cling to that identity of what it means me is to be good. You know, uh -huh. that, oh, I right. don't need to be good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's that, that famous poem that says, you don't need to be good. You don't need to crawl on your hands and knees across the desert seeking redemption. You just need to let the, uh, your body love what it loves. It's a, from Mary Oliver. I'm not, I don't have every word, so I'm, I'm cutting it off a little, but it's, you know, and it's really beautiful to see that you don't have to be, that's not what it's about. It's not about being good. It's about the goodness is already sitting in your seat. You don't have to be good. You are good. Right? And that's a different perception of reality. The goodness is right here. You wouldn't even be here if you weren't good. Meaning you wouldn't be sitting around, you know, you know, you could go be watching the NFL draft if you wanted, or you could be watching a movie right now, right? But there's something that brings you to the Dharma that I believe is 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 part of the goodness of who you are, and and also that brought you to science. You know, one of my teachers is a was an astrophysicist was training to be an astrophysicist when he had a bad accident in, on a motorcycle and he went out of his body and he watched the whole thing right mm -hmm. from above and and after and that changed his whole life because he he came back and he thought oh what i'm looking for in science might be somewhere else and then he got into spirituality but but actually he would agree that they're in both because it's really in you. And, it's, and so if you're in wherever you are, the goodness will be there. And the discovery of reality will be there. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let's see. Niru, 
Hi. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Um, hi. I, hi. I, um, I, what you mentioned about the shifting perspective really resonated with me. And I was thinking, why is it so hard to see through, you know, all these um, the layers? Um, Mm-hmm. And I f- I, so it's a reflection, also a question, but uh, it's, it feels to me that I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, the time, the concept of time <coughs> is like a really big um, layer mm-hmm. that really hinders our, us from really seeing the, what's true because we think that... Um, uh, because the, we are so obsessed with what's either ahead or we either, either we have to constantly, constantly plan for things or think about the past as also part of our identity um but then after all as you as we all talk about what's present is really only true and this also this variable body is also fleeting but then fleeting might not be also the case right it's a concept that we have in our mind but it might not be true too so I, it was funny to you mentioned the astrophysics because i was thinking about quantum physics perspective like the, the concept of time is also a, another conventional layer that we have. Oh, I think you're muted. I cannot hear you. But we, I, don't, I don't know if it is me or me, but I cannot hear you. So, sometimes I can push oh, a button okay. to unmute myself, and so I'll just leave the mute on, and then, but it's not working right now. So okay. go ahead. I missed the last piece of what you said. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was funny that you mentioned about your teacher who was astrophysics because I was thinking from the quantum physics perspective. So the question is, um, it's, is it really the, the concept of time that really, uh, from your perspective, the concept of time that really hinders us from all this or is it just one of the layers that we are struggling with? Yeah, I think it's mostly one of the layers because I like time and I have a nice Apple watch and I love to know how what time it is so i look at my watch and of course this has nothing to do with reality at a certain level it's just we made up time you know and mostly we made it up relating to the nat- natural world and the cycles of the natural world which is daytime and nighttime and but the natural world doesn't have a big clock out there that i've seen so far and so you know and time really conditions uh, so much of how we identify who we think we are because I'm Eugene and I'm, you know, and I did this in the past and I'm going to do this in the future. And so we're always relating to past and future. And it's fine to have a past and a future. It's just not, it's, if, if I go with Phil, it's empty. It's not a, it's not, it's, it, it has a reality on a certain level of reality, but actually it's just, there's no past and there's no future. There's just this. And even this is up for grabs. Let's see if there's even just this. Okay. Thank you. Let me see who else. Jim. Hi, Jim. I can't unmute you so far, Jim. 
How about now? Can you uh, hear me? Yeah. Did you unmute yourself? I guess. You know, my phone is in Spanish, and so it sends me these messages that I don't understand. <laughs> so I just picked one, and it worked. Okay. Um, first, I want to say I really got a lot out of your presentation of the Forest Foundation. It it seemed clearer than than I've ever received it, and and I've even heard teachers, well, this one teacher, even say that he thought maybe the Buddha didn't actually even come up with the fourth, that it came up later and someone just threw all the lists in there. <laughs> but I want to, I like, I like quoting Eugene Cash when I impart the, the Dharma. So I want to clarify what you said, because I love sure. it. Sure. But I hear you say that you prefer the word maturing over awakening. I prefer mature, or yeah, he's, he, was a, he became a mature human being, yes. And awakening's pretty good. Definitely maturing, though, is like, because it's so, because he did something that is surprisingly human. And there's a level of maturity that's possible for us as human beings and as a species that we're still new to. It's still part of our evolution. This is just my opinion, all of this. But yeah, that's how I understand it. And so I like the word, yeah, he became a mature human being. And because have you ever noticed how when you get free of something you're identified with, like, oh, you're freer to deal with things in a very relaxed, kind, intelligent, creative way. Mm -hmm. And that's, those are all part of maturity. Yes, I, he could have been called the mature one rather than the awoke one. Right? I wonder what that is in Pali. Um, and I really liked your conversation there with, with Phil and how those different things, especially that are listed out in the fourth foundation, are different um, ways of seeing. You know, like uh -huh. I, like that, I like the title of Berbea's book, Freeing, uh, Seeing That Freeze. Freeze, yeah. Right? And these different ways that, yeah. that we can see things. And, and I also wanted to add, the first time I ever heard the um, 8th or 9th century Chinese Zen uh, master who was asked why a lifetime of practice was from you, oh, and yeah. you, I think, have said to have the appropriate response. It brings, an, appro it brings an appropriate response, yeah. yeah. Some people don't like that word appropriate. It's kind of got some judgment. But I was thinking we could say to have the mature response. <laughs> well, you can you can say that, my friend. Absolutely. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote your approval, though. <laughs> sure. said I could say that. Of course. Uh, yeah. And by the way, did we just blow right through the third foundation, or was I like spacing out? Or uh, mind heart was the third foundation last. We did year. that on Tuesday. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Must have been. Okay, yeah. thank you. <laughs> okay, wait, there was one thing I wanted to say that you said, but I don't know what it is now. Uh, Regarding ways of seeing? or Oh, oh yeah, ways of seeing and Ron Berbia. Mm -hmm. um, isn't he a big um, dependent origination guy? Um, I thought he was, I think of him more as a big emptiness guy. His big uh -huh. fat book is about emptiness. Uh -huh. um, I thought that was Guy Armstrong was about emptiness. He also has a book that came subsequent oh. that's a little thinner and okay. not as dense. <laughs> okay. Okay. What well, ways that, didn't Burbia wrote, wrote a book called Ways to See or 
the seeing that seeing free, that seeing freeze. That freeze. freeze. Yeah. And, yeah. And is that about emptiness or is that yeah. about, okay. okay. Well, it's about a ton of things, including dependent origination. Yeah. And that's it's, a, okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah, it's all in there. Okay. Good. I'm glad it's all somewhere. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not as complete as the suttas, but I mean, it's got a lot in. Yeah, no, he's. He, I hear good things about him. I've never met him actually. Yeah, I've only been in the same room with him. But as you probably know, he's very close to death due to years. Oh no, I didn't fight know that. He's like he's in hospice right now. As we speak. Oh, okay. Well, we can all send him a lot of loving kindness and good wishes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for letting us know. Okay, anybody else? We have a couple minutes before we end. Wait, 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 you got you got muted. Is that you? I don't see you. You've got to raise your hand again because I can't find you. <laughs> okay, what'd you say? Real, real quick, Eugene, I had a question about dependent origination, because I think you had said this once before in a talk, maybe it could have been years ago, but between contact and Vedana, you know, is there a space, is there a moment there where we can be aware of the contact and not get caught by the push and pull of Vedana? Sure. Okay. Well, I, oh, I don't. I, I don't know if there's a moment between the contact and the vedna, maybe. But there's a, definitely a moment. I mean, after, with the vedna here, we don't have to be caught by it. It's just vedna. Okay, it's but just, it's gonna. It's gonna arise. We can't really stop it from arising. Uh, as far as I can tell, vedna happens for everybody. That's why it's in the aggregates. Even, and, even uh, when they're awakened. I mean, just read the suttas, how much the Buddha complains about stuff. <laughs> you know, really, he's like, you know, he has, you know, it's pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neutral. Okay. Okay. Well, given we've only got a minute, I'm going to assume we're not going to, I'm not going to take another question. So let's just do a little sharing of merit before we end. Offering our good wishes, letting the good fortune we have to be here together go out in every direction, touching beings in every realm, in every world. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings have a shift in perspective so they begin to see the way things are, both personally and impersonally. May all beings awaken. May we all be free.
Hey, everybody. Good to be with you. I would say something about Donna, but I know you all know about Donna and you'll respond appropriately, supporting SFI and the teaching and me. So thank you for your generosity. And I'll see you on Tuesday and we'll continue with the Satipatthana. Please see what happens if you begin to start looking through the lens of the Dharma as we, you move through your day, your evening tonight, and your, this weekend, and, and then we'll continue to practice together when we get together on Tuesday. May everyone be well and healthy and taken care of in every way of anybody we can who needs help. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.